0: Okay, let's open up in the Bible now to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. We uh, are still in the book of Matthew. This week marks one year that we started in the book of Matthew a year ago. So we're kicking butt. For a reality pace, we're like, we're moving fast. That's a chapter a month. 12 months, we finished 12 chapters, we're killing it. We're going to slow down a little bit, though, since we've been going so fast here in chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 23, but we're going to take four weeks to do so. So we're doing a little mini-series here on the parable of the soils, or the parable of the sower, a little uh, mini-series. There's four soils that Jesus talks about that represent four different conditions of the heart. So we'll take a week to talk about each one. Today is the hard heart, one of the heart conditions that Jesus addresses. So we'll read verses 1 through 23. I am reading and teaching from the New Living Translation this morning. Okay, all right. Good. Okay, Matthew 13, starting in verse 1. Later that same day, Jesus left the house and sat beside the lake. A large crowd soon gathered around him, so he got into a boat. Then he sat there and taught as the people stood on the shore, told them many stories in the form of parables, such as this one. Listen, a farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil with underlying rock. The seeds sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow, but the plants soon wilted under the hot sun. Since they didn't have deep roots, they died. Other seeds fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil, and they produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even a hundred times as much as had been planted. Anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. His disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? Jesus replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. And they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills a prophecy of Isaiah that says, When you hear what I say, You will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes. So their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. Seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand God's word and produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your teaching that is before us. We ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and comprehension that we would grasp your word, that we would receive it with joy and that we would obey your word. Jesus, our Lord, truly, where you would warn us in your word, help us to hear the warnings. Holy Spirit, help us to see blind spots in our lives. Help us to notice unprotected spaces in our lives where we're moving toward, hedging toward disobedience. Lead us, Holy Spirit, in paths of righteousness for Christ's namesake. So help us to hear your word and to respond, to obey. Please, Holy Spirit, help me to teach and preach now in a way that's clear and helpful and faithful to Jesus. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, our text opens up with Jesus sitting on the lake, on the shore of the lake, the Sea of Galilee. And maybe he's trying to get a little rest. He's just had a big confrontation with some of the religious leaders. There's been lots of crowds, lots going on. And the text opens with him just sitting by the shore of the Sea of Galilee. But no sooner is he sitting there than a crowd begins to gather. And his popularity was, you know, pretty big time by now. He's done a lot of awesome miracles. He's said a lot of amazing things. He's gotten in some pretty serious fights with the religious leaders. So people are interested. And perhaps looking for a little relief as a crowd gathers, Jesus steps back into a boat that's right there by the shore. And then he sits down in the boat and he starts to teach the people who are standing. In the first century, Jewish rabbis used to sit while they taught and the people would stand the whole time. Why don't we be biblical and give it a try? (laughs) An allowance of grace for that one. So Jesus is in this boat, there's this crowd, and he's beginning to teach them. And it says in verse 3 that he told them some stories, and he did so in the form of parables. This is the parable chapter of Matthew. In Matthew 13, we're going to see several parables over the next several weeks. And this was a common way that Jesus taught. They're all over the Gospels, Jesus using parables. So it's important that we understand what a parable is. So, you've asked the question, what is a parable? Well, it's quite simple. A parable is a short story used to illustrate a spiritual truth. The teacher, Jesus, here, using common points of reference to illustrate, bring light to, instruct concerning, teach spiritual truths. It's a comparison. The word actually comes from two Greek words put together, para, which means beside, and bale, which means to throw. So the idea is to throw alongside, to place side by side. In other words, to say, this is kind of like this. That's all that he's doing here. In fact, he'll say that explicitly in the next parable that we'll get to in a few weeks. He'll say, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So it's just a teaching tool that uses comparison or analogy, common points of reference to explain deep and wonderful things. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But what has to happen for the listener when a parabolic teaching method is being used is you've got to catch the point. And it's usually quite simple. Most of the parables illustrate one spiritual point. And they're usually pretty simple. As I said, there's only two parables in all of Scripture that Jesus stops to explain. It's this one and another one at the end of the chapter. So you've got to kind of catch the point of what's being said. The other thing that's important for us to know about Jesus' use of parables here is that there seems to be, from his explanation, a dual purpose in his teaching with parables. A dual purpose. And the dual purpose is this. He uses them both to reveal and to conceal. Now follow me because this is interesting. He uses them both to reveal and to conceal. To separate those who wanted to understand what Jesus had to say, wanted to seek out the truth, from those who did not want to understand and seek out the truth. And almost surprisingly, we see that there was a lot of people in the gospel so far that didn't want to hear the truth, that refused to believe the truth of what Jesus was saying and doing. And so his teaching through parables was a way to separate the two, to both reveal and conceal. That's what he says. We'll re- look at it again starting in verse 10. When his disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? He replied, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken from them. That is why I use parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. Jesus was quoting Isaiah 9, 6 there. Now, let's not misunderstand that. It's not that Jesus did not want people to comprehend what he was saying, per se. He clearly did. In fact, the invitation in verse 9 was, anyone with ears to hear should listen and understand. So it's not that he didn't want to reveal truth. He did want to reveal truth, but this was for those who refused to hear the truth. It wasn't merely that they had an inability to comprehend. It was that they had an unwillingness to comprehend. It wasn't a matter of opportunity. It wasn't deprivation of opportunity. It was that they could hear, but they refused to accept, to believe, to lay hold of the truth that was being taught. That may be surprising, but it's not really that uncommon. The nation of Israel in the Old Testament often found themselves in this place. God would communicate to them over and over in multitudinous ways through the prophets. And yet often they would dig in their heels and just not want to hear the truth that God was bringing them. I think our world is often this way. I think that there's abundant evidence for a creator God and for a moral lawgiver. And that the word of God is, is true. And yeah, oft, oftentimes people just kind of dig in their heels and they don't want to heed it. Also think that this is sometimes true of us. Sometimes our own, Christians now, sometimes our own commitment to doing what we want to do is such that we just don't want to hear the truth about it. And in some way we're closing our eyes and refusing to see. That is a deep, dark, dangerous, spiritual place that we often saw Israel in in the Old Testament, our world today, but sometimes even ourselves. Jesus kind of expands on, expounds on why that is as he continues to quote from Isaiah 6 in verse 14. He says, this fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. Here's a salient point. For or because the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear and they have closed their eyes. You see, there's an intentionality. It's not a mere lack of comprehension. It's an unwillingness. So their eyes cannot see and their ears cannot hear and their hearts cannot understand. Now here's the sad part. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. Notice the intent of God, to heal them, to heal through forgiveness to heal through restoration and renewal, to heal through leading in paths of righteousness. But a refusal to turn, that idea of of turning to God, is the same idea as the word repentance. There's a digging into the heels to repent, to acknowledge we're going the wrong way. Let's go God's way. And so some would say that Jesus is uh, adhering to his own maxim here of not throwing pearls before swine people that didn't want to hear the truth. And he spoke in parables, Parables, excuse me, and to those who wanted to hear, they heard and understood. To those who didn't, to them, it wasn't revealed. Now, I am hopeful that we are more like the people that Jesus speaks about in verse 16. When he says to his disciples, but blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Please, God, may we have eyes to see and ears to hear. So what then are we supposed to catch, see, and hear from the parable? Well, Jesus said that there were four soils, right? There was the footpath, that would be hard soil. There was the shallow soil, that would be where there's rocky ground underneath. There was the crowded soil, right? That would be where there's already a bunch of thorns growing. And there was the good soil, where a crop was produced and in abundance, And these soils, the parable teaches, are representative of various heart conditions. Now, it's not as though we just one time have this heart condition and then we progress through the rest and we never return to that one or we're all just doomed to one sort of heart condition. I think that in the seasons of life, sometimes we discover that our hearts are like these soils in different ways at different times. Right? So four different heart conditions. The hard heart, the shallow heart, the crowded heart, and the good heart. And today we're just looking at the hard heart. Verse 19 is where Jesus explains it. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom, the word of God, and don't understand it. Then the evil one comes and snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. So let's think about that now. My contention is that in the seasons of life, we sometimes move through and experience these different soils of the heart. What might cause us to have a hard heart? You know what hard ground looks like. You know what a footpath looks like, right? It's more common in those days because there wasn't pavement and asphalt necessarily and all that stuff though the Roman road, never mind. But you know what a a path looks like, right? How many of you ever go hiking or you walk on the bluffs here in Carpinteria? And you could be walking through a super grassy area, but where the footpath is, there's like nothing growing there, right? Because it's hard ground. It has been traveled on and trampled on so frequently that the ground has become relatively impenetrable. And so what was happening was the sower went out, Jesus said, and he was sowing generously, but the seed that fell there on the hard ground didn't take root, and now we have an antagonist come into the picture, and the birds, he said in the first part, later he explained the evil one comes and snatches it away. So truth coming, not penetrating, enemy coming and removing. Why? Why might this happen? Well, one reason why this might happen to us is sometimes our hearts are too often traveled and trampled with untruths. Our hearts are supposed to be formed by the Christian heart. You know what we mean metaphorically when we're saying heart, right? We don't mean the actual organ, but we're talking about that that seat of the mind, the soul, the intellect, the place that we receive from. Everybody with me? Yeah, we got that. Okay. The Christian heart is one that is to be nourished. The Christian mind, the Christian soul is to be one that is nourished on truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. We've been delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. We are children of the light. We are to be nourished on and living in the truth. But oftentimes we can allow our own hearts to become traveled and trampled by untruths. It's easy to happen in this culture because we, like Jesus, live in a pluralistic society, right? You've heard that word pluralism. That means that we live in a society that applauds the idea that there are uh, various truth claims that all compete with one another, that one thing and another thing can both be true at the same time right? I mean, we even have politicians now talking about alternative truth. Oh, totally. That's pluralism. Alternative truth. Now we're not talking about preferences. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I think that um, whatever music you like, like, I, I, I think that Waylon and Willie's 1978 album was the best album of the year. Right, that's a time where you could say, well, that's true for you, but that's not true for me or most sane people that I know. <laughs> you probably don't know that album. Uh, but there are preferences, you know, where we can say, gosh, you two is the best band and ah, I don't care for them. You know? But truth is not that way. But what does our culture say all the time about really key truthful issues? Well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Well, that might be the way that you see it, but I don't see it this way. So we live in a pluralistic society where it is an allowable thought that there are competing truth claims and they can all ultimately be true. And it was the same way in Jesus' culture. right? You had all sorts of competing truth claims about the Roman gods and the Greek pantheon of gods. Different ways to know God, different paths that led into truth. The offense of Jesus was that he came along and he stared in the face of pluralism and said, there's actually one true way. He claimed absolute exclusivity. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And they ended up killing him for his exclusivity, for his claim to be the way, the truth, and life. Later on, Paul would say very offensively, there is one mediator between God and man. Christ Jesus. So our culture and pluralism would say, well, there's a lot of roads that lead to God. And Jesus quite offensively steps up and says, no, there's only one and I am him. It was a very unpopular message then. It's a very unpopular message now. If it begins to appear as though it were popular, we should wonder about our faithfulness in communicating the message. Live in a pluralistic society, the exclusive claim of Christianity, of Christ is the only way to heaven. God to eternal life is not going to be popular. The other society in which we live in, or another facet of the society, is the idea of reversalism. Now, those of you that are smart know that that's not a word. I made that word up. But those of you that are smart know that that's how we get words, is smart people make them up, and later on they become words. That's a good one, reversalism. Here's what I mean. We live in a world that now celebrates what was once condemned and now condemns what was once celebrated. Look what God said through the prophet Isaiah 2,700 years ago. Woe to those who call evil good And good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now think about the issues of our day. And think about the reversalism that we see takes place on a continual basis in our culture. You know, 40 years ago, abortion was illegal. Now, in reversalism, we don't even call it abortion anymore. We call it reproductive rights. And we celebrate reproductive rights, but not the rights of the unborn. What is murder of an innocent life, we've reversed and reframed into being rights for someone else. That's reversalism. We do this in our culture on issues of marriage, sexuality. Culture's beginning to call good, what is evil, and evil, what is good. Now, the danger for us is that this is the culture in which we live. And these are the messages that we hear. The Christian man, woman, and child all have a responsibility to steward their hearts carefully as it pertains to messaging and to truth. We will overwhelmingly, through the media and through movies and through what's celebrated in song, we will overwhelmingly experience reversalism, calling good what is evil. And we need to be careful on what we're feeding our hearts because that affects the condition of our heart. And I think many of us would testify that if someone or if culture says something loud enough, long enough, we all begin to believe it. This is how cultural change happens. Regardless of what the truth issue is. And there are messages that are contrary to Scripture that the culture is saying loud and long. And we need to be sure that we're returning back to what is true and truly good to nourish our hearts on that. But if we only feast on the messages of the world, you know, honestly now, in all humility, preaching to myself also, honestly now, we as Christians should consume popular media differently than the rest of the world. I mean, we we, we honestly should censor what we let ourselves see and hear on a regular basis because whether you're cognizant of it or not, we feed on those things. Those things begin to have an effect on us. Let me give you an analogy, comparison, metaphor, parable. It's like eating bad food. Okay, uh, how many of you have a bad diet? Confess right now. Okay, all right, okay. So what happens when you eat bad food on a regular basis is it ceases in your estimation to be bad. You might have acknowledged that before God in the church this morning, but in general, you don't really esteem it to be bad. The other thing that happens, listen very carefully, you begin to lose taste for truly good food what is truly good and wholesome is no longer palatable to you. And so we begin to think, because it's not palatable to me, it must not actually be good. Maybe it's good for you. It's not good for me, pluralism, leading into reversalism, right? So if we just eat McDonald's and ice cream and candy all the time, Our body kind of gets used to that reality and that's just what we eat and we just think, well, that's good food. So we don't have any taste. We don't have any palate for like salad, brown rice, asparagus, and wild game. (laughs) The food of God. (laughs) And we don't even realize that we're missing out on the wholesomeness And the goodness, we don't have a taste for it. Therefore, how can it actually be good? And perhaps at some point in our life, we begin to feel the effects of bad nutrition, and we change course, and we start to eat good things, and then we're like, how did I ever live off Hagen dazs and Big Macs? (laughs) The same is true with the messages that we consume if you only consume the messages of this world, you will lose a palate for truth. And even well-meaning Christians will hear the message of the world and this will begin to seem foreign to them. And you long for the message of the world now, what the world is telling you. And if you truly want that, then how can this actually be good? You see the danger that's there? And it's not only an issue of messaging. It's also an issue of the enemy. Right? If if we lose our palate for truth and we develop this hardness of heart and so we don't readily agree with and receive and obey the truth, we resist like that hard pathway. The enemy comes in and snatches it away. That's why, as it pertains to truth, God told Israel and subsequently us things like this from Deuteronomy 6. This is the way the truth is to be to us. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing to the Jordan to possess. Moses speaking so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and with all your strength. These commandments, truth, that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads, meaning they're always supposed to be in front of you. Write them on your door frames of your houses and on your gates. That's why when you go into an observant Jewish home, there's that little thing in the door jamb it has a scroll of this text in it. The idea is every time I leave my house or enter my place, I'm reminded of the importance of truth. I go out into this world realizing truth. I come into my dwelling place with my family, giving attention to truth. In fact, the Bible tells us to impress it on our children because we can be sure that the culture and media is impressing other truths on them. So we have to impress true truth on them. And it gives us an explicit sort of pathway to do that. Talk about these things, right? When? When you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you go to bed, when you get up in the morning. Talk about truth. Let truth always be in front of you. Bind it on your right hand. So whatever you do, oh my gosh, yeah, truth is important. Put it on your forehead. So when you look in the mirror... Ah, truth. The truth of God's word is to be before us as Christians. We are to let our hearts be traveled and trampled with truth. And not untruth. And we're to value the truth of the word of God. Look at Psalm 19 in the way it talks about God's truth. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. The decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise is simple. The commandments of the Lord are right, bringing joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. Reverence for the Lord or fear of the Lord is pure, lasting forever. The laws of the Lord are true. Each one is fair. They are more desirable than gold, even the finest gold. They're sweeter than honey, even the dripping from the comb. They are a warning to your servant, a great reward for those who obey them. How can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults, God. Keep your servant from deliberate sins. Don't let them control me. Then I'll be free from guilt and innocent of great sin. May the words of my mouth, look at this prayer, and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. There's a countercultural like take some real intentionality prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable that will largely be dependent upon what we consume. As your mom used to say, trash in, trash out. That's true. And so I find as I, like you, try to struggle through this world and I hear all the messages of the world and I, you know, like most of us, I, I probably spend more time with media than I do with my Bible. So I have an unbalanced eye. I mean, I'm getting a whole lot of this stuff. And sometimes, even I with a well-formed Christian mind, sometimes when I hear the untruths, and I go, "Well, yeah, this does sound kind of foreign or unpalatable or hard to digest. Man, there I am on a slippery slope of my heart becoming like a pathway, too traveled, too trampled with untruth, so that even truth is now unpalatable and seems foreign to me. God, help me. I find then that as I live in this world, I need prayer language. I need help to pray these things through. The psalmist in Psalm 119 gives us grammar for prayer to pray about this. Here's here's a prayer for us, okay? Open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Help me understand the meaning of your commandments and I will meditate on your wonderful deeds. That's prayer language. Lord, open my eyes to see the wonderful truth of your word. Help me to comprehend it. Now the second point, and we're almost down because there's only three. The second point, is that sometimes our hearts are hard like a pathway and impenetrable to the word because they are too often traveled and trampled with rebellion. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we have an unwillingness leading to an inability to hear the word of God, to hear truth, to see it, to receive it because we have so dug in our heels about what it is we want to do. And there is a hardening effect that happens in our hearts if we continue, if we persist in sin. Does this experience relate to any of you? Maybe you remember a sin that you dove into at one time where the first time you began to do it, you really sensed the wrongness of it. And there was like some real like bells going off inside of you. The Holy Spirit, the spirit in you, your conscience. And you were flushed with fearful emotion. And you were resistant because there was this clear warning like, that is not the way to go. That is not the truth, the light that God is leading you into. But we went there anyway. And the next time when we returned to that place, There were still some bells, there were still some Holy Spirit warnings, but they seemed less potent. They sounded more faint. They appeared a little more blurry. It's not because the Holy Spirit lost His voice. It's because our conscience is beginning to be seared and our hearts are growing calloused against truth, God's Word. And it was a little easier to rebel that time. And so the third time and the fourth time and the fifth time. And every time it got easier to follow in that sin because our hearts were hardened by that sin. And so the truth wasn't easily taking root in us because of our rebellion. And you know what we do in those times then? Because our hearts get hard and it seems as though the conviction is less, we somehow convince ourselves, well, God must be okay with what I'm doing. And we'll go through all sorts of hoops and gymnastics to to somehow convince ourselves that God is okay with it or I've got the cosmic one in the universe caveat where God's okay with me doing it because... Does that sound familiar to anybody? Don't raise your hand. Sometimes our hearts are too traveled and trampled with rebellion, and so they become hard and resistant to truth. We looked at the scripture last week, it just reiterates what I was saying, and we looked at it the week before, but it bears looking out again. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Just speaking to us, Christians. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be, key phrase, hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There it is. Hardened. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it's still said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Talking about Israel in the wilderness. A warning to us as Christians, we are as Christians to steward, to guard our hearts, and, and, look, it's plural, brethren, we are as a community supposed to steward and guard one another's hearts. So in some sense, there's got got to be some mechanism in which we're saying, hey, that's not what we should consume. That's not nutritious. That's not wholesome. That's not the truth of God's word. Whatever is lovely, pure, excellent, of good repute, worthy of praise. Think on these things, Paul said in Philippians. Look at it said another way by Paul in Ephesians. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk. Okay, New Testament way of saying unbelievers. And the futility of their mind. Okay, so he's calling us not to be how we used to be before we put our faith in Christ and the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. The good news is when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins and turn to him for forgiveness according to what he did on the cross and in his resurrection, we are made new creations. It's the good news. Holiness and purity, washed, forgiven, made new. The warning that comes along with the good news is so don't start to act old. Don't go back to Mickey D's and haagen You've been brought into asparagus and salad and brown rice and wild game. Which are good if you don't see that. So put on the new self. Lay hold of who we are in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk in truth. Paul would say in Romans, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Prophet Isaiah once again, God said this through him: "Thus says the Lord, your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel: I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go." Then he says, "If only you had paid attention to my commandments, then your well-being would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the ways of the sea." There's one of the times in Scripture where God says, "I told you so." I, he says, "I'm God." Okay, I'm the moral lawgiver. I'm I'm the inventor of truth. And I teach you because I love you and I lead you in the way you should go. And then in those times that we don't, gosh, if only you had gone that way, there would have been a different sort of well-being and peace that pervaded your life. So I, 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 I find that's hard because I find myself surprisingly rebellious. And when I give myself to rebellion, There is a palpable, tangible, discernible hardness that happens here. So I begin to see truth as foreign and unpalatable. And I find that I once again need prayer language for that. Grammar to help me beseech God to deliver me from that. Again, the psalmist is helpful in Psalm 119. Okay, these are Christian prayers for us. Teach me your decrees, O Lord. I'll keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. Make me walk along the path of your commands, for that is where my happiness is found. See, that's one of those phrases, that's one of those claims of Scripture, that when our hearts are hardened and calloused by the deceitfulness of sin, it is hard to believe. And it may sound to some of us unpalatable that if I obey God, there I'm going to find happiness. We have bought into the lie that if I obey myself and what I want, there I will find happiness. God in his love is endeavoring to save us from that untruth. And the last point, and it's the shortest one. Sometimes our hearts become hard because they've been too often traveled and trampled by pain. And we turn a little bit of a corner here. Sometimes our hearts become hard because they have been traveled and trampled by pain. Sometimes life has been cold enough, long enough, that our hearts become like the frozen tundra, where nothing gets in, nothing penetrates. I've spent a lot of time in that space. But remember, Jesus' whole point was that people would turn to him and that he would heal them. Sometimes we're so hurt, it's hard for us to turn to God and get to that place of healing. It's hard to believe his claims. Sometimes it's hard to believe the message of the kingdom. But there is a good God who loves you wildly and gave his son to die for us on the cross to forgive us of our sins that we might have new life and as Christ rose from the dead victoriously we have new life and he's ruling and reigning in glory on high and he's in control and he's infinitely and intimately concerned with the details of your life and he is coming again to undo everything that has ever gone wrong and to set right every injustice and wickedness and that there is coming a day where he will wipe away every tear and there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The Old things will have passed away and all things will be brand new. Sometimes life is painful enough that that's hard to believe. And sometimes in our pain, God just feels so absent that's where we once again need truth the psalmist said in psalm 34 the lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit man sometimes it, the opposite of that feels so true and so real to me but this is truth the lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit you know uh, With any humility that I can muster, I say this. People often come to my wife, Kate, and me and say, gosh, I so admire your faith. Your daughter, Daisy Love, got cancer and suffered for five years and then she died and you stuck with Jesus. We didn't stick with Jesus. Jesus stuck with us we didn't have any means by which to hold on to anymore. Our hearts were so traveled and trampled by pain, we couldn't see the truth. The truth was, though, that Jesus held on to us. God said through the prophet Isaiah to his people, do not fear or anxiously look around you, for I am your God and I will rescue you. I will uphold you. Jesus' invitation was, come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so I have found in this life that I, I again need prayer language and my pain. And the same psalmist in the same place offers this. I lie in the dust Revive me by your word. There's an honest prayer. I weep with sorrow. Encourage me by your word. Look at this one. Keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. I long to obey your commandments. Renew my life with your goodness. The most glorious truth, perhaps, this morning is that whatever our pain, whatever our rebellion, whatever lies we've been believing, Jesus is more powerful and wonderful than all of them. And he's able to deliver us from any of it. And in one sense, brothers and sisters, he already has Don't forget the terms of the new covenant. I'll just read it to you, the terms of the new covenant. In Ezekiel 36, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. The work of the cross. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. Listen, and I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. And I will put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. In the promises of the cross, he has already delivered us from these things. He's given us new hearts, soft and supple and alive to him, and his spirit is in us. We just need to be careful to press into that reality, to press into those things. This is why we're mindful of, The way that a heart can become hardened because God has given us soft hearts. And when they do get hard, his word is like a hammer breaking it up and his spirit is like water moistening it. And repentance yields us to both. The hammer of his word, the water of his spirit. Let's not forget the call of the prophet Hosea who said, Sow righteousness for yourselves. Reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground, the hard ground of your heart, for it's time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. The power of Christ's love and forgiveness is greater than any hardness of our hearts. But do something today if there's some callousing, some rebelling, some drifting, some tough ground in there. Break it up, come before Jesus. You know, that's what the second set of worship is all about. It's a time for us to do something about what we've heard. That's why we ever started having a second set of worship. Well, so that the enemy wouldn't snatch away the truth that we heard because we run out in the parking lot and we're like, how's the waves? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do? And it's just like, and so that we could marinate in the presence of God in an attitude of prayer and worship where the spirit and the word can break up and soften and bring us to a place of repentance where we discover joy and happiness in following Christ obediently. So do that. Do that today. Communion will be up here for you to remember and celebrate the cross. Prayer team will be up here. If you have any needs, they're mighty in prayer. They'll cover you in prayer. You can come and get on the carpets before your face and say, Jesus, rescue me in the hard place that I am. And he'll hear that prayer and he'll do so. Amen? Thank you, God, for your merciful love for us. Thank you, Jesus, that when we were hard, you came and saved us through the cross, made us soft and supple to you. Holy Spirit, with the love of the Father, cultivate that in us today. Thank you, Spirit, that you know our hard places and you love us still. Lead us into repentance where we need to. Please, Holy Spirit, shed light on the places where we are walking in darkness and believing untruths. Please, God, shed your light there. Holy Spirit, we would ask for a renewal in our lives of the warning system that we have deadened through our own rebellion and callousness. We ask for a renewal of the warning of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in us. That you would lead us in paths of righteousness for Christ's name's sake. And we ask for your merciful tenderness with our deep places of pain where it's hard for us to see and believe the truth of a good God. We trust you in those places, Lord.